The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com. Um, if you'll turn with me to Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That was, uh, that was planned. It's to get you all ready uh, for what's coming. Um, that's a joke. Uh, hi, I, uh, my name is Glenn. I'm a, I'm a pastoral resident here at the church, so I'm not one of the pastors, uh, but I have the, the joy and the privilege to serve as a resident here training for ministry. Um, and so, so before we jump into our text this morning, I do this often with our community group. I, I try and remind them why we're doing what we're doing in this very moment. And so in this moment, I want you to think of me as a minor, and I want you to think of this text as the mountain. And during this week, I have been mining. And, uh, and what I'm hoping to do in this time is I'm trying to bring out all the treasures I've found uh, in the text. And, and there are many treasures. There's, there's riches and jewels, and, and they're in here. And namely, there, there is a treasure amongst treasures in our text today, and it is, it is Christ Jesus. So, so as I preach to you this morning, I want to remind you that that is exactly what we're doing in this time, is that I'm trying to hold up the treasure of Christ Jesus to you. Um, so all of that said, uh, we're very excited that you're here. Um, if, you're, if you're a guest this morning, um, we'd love to meet you. So there's a connect table back there. Uh, in a few weeks here, we're going to be having a members meeting. We're going to be sending off one of our pastors. Uh, so, so keep those things in mind. But, but to jump into our text today, we find ourselves in Philippians chapter 3. And because we're in chapter 3, we need to get a grasp of what's been happening in the first few chapters. So I just want to give you, at large, this is what the book of Philippians has been about. It's this in a statement. It is this. The purpose of the book is to encourage the Philippian partners in their terrifying, though joyous campaign to advance the gospel by focusing on a selfless mindset that produces unity. Now, I know that that's a, a large statement, but that is the book in, in, in its entirety. That's what Paul is going after. And I want you to see here that in this book, there are several themes. And all of these themes are actually going to show up in our text today. 
So the, there's a few themes I want to note before we even get to our text, and they, they are these. The first one is you and me and me and you. All throughout this book, Paul has been talking about partnership, partnership for the advancement of the gospel. Another theme in this book is the theme of joy, joy that results from gospel advancement despite suffering. There's joy despite suffering in gospel advancement. Next, I want you to see in this book the theme of suffering. Suffering for the gospel is normal for Christians. This is a normal thing for us. And lastly, I want you to see that a selfless mindset, the mindset of Christ, promotes a unified front for gospel advancement. So so that's the book in its whole. Those are some of its themes that have been driven at week after week. And and finally, we're we're gaining ourselves to, to my text today. And this is what I want to argue for you. I hope you to see this thing today. If you're to see anything today, it is this is I want you to remember, church, that you are in Christ. And when you do, His surpassing worth will allow you to see that gain is loss and that loss is gain. Church, I want you to see the surpassing worth of Christ and that you are in Him. And in light of that, I want want us to all consider our identities. I want you to know uh, that your identity is in Christ. And in light of that, I hope that some of you are shaken by this text and that indeed you have an identity crisis. Your identity is this Christian. In the whole, not in part, you are in Christ. In Christ. That, that is what you are. And that's what I'm hoping to prove to you this morning in our text. So, so without further ado, I'm just going to go ahead and jump in. And we're going to walk verse by verse through this text. Verse by verse. So, so look at me. Chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you the same things is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. So I just noted to you that there's this theme of joy, and this is the first thing that he's saying in this text. He says, rejoice, my brothers. Finally, rejoice. And all through the letter, we see joy popping up. In this letter, Paul has joy as he prays for the people. He rejoices in gospel proclamation. And whenever he's in prison and he's thinking about death, instead of dying in in And being with Christ in eternity, he wants to remain for their joy, for the joy of the church. Paul takes joy in his suffering and in the gospel advancement. Both his own sacrifice, and he takes joy in the sacrifice of others. And finally, Paul is encouraging us to rejoice. Rejoice, my brothers, in what Christ has done, and in your partnership with him in gospel advancement. And then he says this phrase, to write these things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe to you. And, and from our context, it's not exactly clear whether Paul is pointing backwards or whether he's pointing forwards in the statement. But either way, it's still bringing gravity to our text. If it is backwards, if you recall from Josh's sermon last week, just, just the text right above ours, he's, he's giving these really personal examples of, of Epaphroditus. And, and, and these other brothers who have risked everything for advancing the gospel. So if it is backwards, then he's saying, risking and sending and going for the gospel's sake, it is no trouble for me to tell you about these things. And in fact, it's safe. It's safer that you know about this type of work, the sending and going of gospel witnesses and the suffering that they'll endure. But if it is forward, if he's pointing forward, then he's warning us 
related to our works identity. He's bringing about a warning. It's not, it's not trouble for me, Paul says, to say these things for you, and it's safe. I need to protect you. There's something that's coming to attack your identity, and it is this works-based righteousness. So finally, we, we get into our text in verse 2, and he says this phrase, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And all of these names he's giving out are, in fact, names for the Jews. These are all names for the Jews. But what Paul is doing with all these names is he's taking a word that they would use and he's stealing it from them. And in a sarcastic way, he's throwing it back in their face. He says to the Jews, you call, you call the Gentiles dogs. That's what the Jews would call the Gentiles in their day. And dogs in the first century were, were not like dogs today where they're like basically in our family. They, they were vile creatures. They were scavengers of sorts and they were considered unclean by the Jewish people. So when the Jewish people were looking at the Gentiles, they would say, there go the dogs. And they would belittle them and call them these belittling names. And Paul steals this term from them and he calls them the dogs. He says, look out for the dogs. That is, the Jews. And next he says, look out for the evildoers. And once again, the Jews would have considered themselves the righteous ones. They are the keepers of the law. They are the ones who are doing rightly by God. And yet the Gentiles were considered the sinners, the evil ones. And so Paul takes this phrase from them and he throws it back in their face. He says, watch out for the evildoers. He's flipping it here. Why? Because the Jews were emphasizing works of the law, which emphasize self-reliance, and it reduces a need for a savior. And next he calls them mutilators of the flesh mutilators of the flesh. And this is a reference to the Old Testament procedure of circumcision. So, so circumcision in the Old Testament and in the Old Covenant was a sign that you were in God's family, that you were good, that you were in God's family, you're a born Jew, you're circumcised, you're on the inside. And so circumcision in our context, as we're going to see would have been something that the Jews were pointing to to justify themselves. They would have said, what makes me righteous before God? Look at my circumcision. Look at, look at my lineage. Look at the works I've done for Christ Jesus, or, or rather, for God. And they would have been looking to these things to justify themselves. And, and he, he throws it back in their face. Christian, if I could speak to you for a moment. If anything is used... To justify you before God, it should be considered in this way. It should be nothing. It should be nothing for you. And if you're having any trouble sensing Paul's tone here, he does not like what they're doing. He does not enjoy it. He calls this ancient, this, this personal, important thing for them, circumcision, and he calls it a mutilation of the flesh. That's all it is. If you miss Christ, that's all it is. That's all it is, Jews. So if I was to bring this into today for you, just for a moment before we launch into our text, I would say this to you. I would remind you, Christian, that God doesn't accept you based on how much you read your Bible. God doesn't accept you because you have a quiet time every day. He doesn't accept you because you go to church every Sunday. And He doesn't accept you because you have a seminary degree or because you have a better marriage than so-and-so, or you're a better mom than so-and-so. 
None of these things justify you. None of them. Christ alone justifies. And so he, he gives them these titles. He says, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. And then he reminds the brethren who they are. He reminds them and he says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. It's curious here. One of our identifiers for who we are stated negatively, we are the ones who put no confidence in the flesh. There is no boasting for Christians there. If I was to just zoom out for a moment, I'd want you to look at this passage and see the Trinity is present here. Is He not? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the triune God is present here. And yet Paul calls us the circumcision. He's stealing this term from the Jews. So what does he mean here? He means we are the circumcision par excellence, meaning the better, the truer, the the true circumcision. If you're wanting to know who's really in God's family, it's not those who have gone through the rite of circumcision, but it's those who are connected with Christ, those connected by the Spirit. We belong in Christ's family, not because of an external sign, but because of the work that Christ has done. And he says this phrase, he says, who worship by the Spirit of God. Who worship by the Spirit of God. Did you know that the Spirit must, must mediate worship for us? Did you know that there's, you can't even worship God without the Spirit? So this morning, when we're singing songs, we can be confident that if we're doing it truly and genuinely and rightly, that the Spirit of God is amongst us. That He's really here. Whether or not we invite Him into the room, the Spirit is working in worship. We can't even worship God without the Spirit. That's us Christians. We're the ones who worship God by the Spirit's work. And we see here again that the emphasis here is on God. It's not on us or that we somehow conjured up something or pulled ourselves up or really got ourselves in the right mindset to worship God, but it is God. He's the one, the Spirit of God. He allows us to even worship God, to even give Him worth. And then he says this phrase, we are the ones who glory in Christ Jesus. And I want to, I want to zoom in here on one of the words here, glory. Uh, this word glory is the Greek word kalkomai. And it could be translated in a, in a variety of ways. And, it, and if you were to look those definitions up, it would be to take pride in something, to boast, to glory, to pride oneself, to brag. And I think a better translation here would be to boast. Would be to boast. We are Christians, the ones who boast in Christ Jesus. We're the ones who boast in Him, not in ourselves. And I think, I think this word suits it better because it's helping to bring about this great contrast that we're seeing here between those who work for their salvation They work for acceptance with God and those who are boasting in Christ. They look to Him. They're confident in His work. And in fact, this phrase, boasting in Christ Jesus, this is the very phrase that Paul used to encapsulate all of his ministry. If you're trying to say, what is Paul's ministry? What is he trying to do? In Philippians 1.26, he says this, that he might give the believers ample cause to boast in Christ Jesus. So Christians, our, our life and our ministries in their entirety is that we are the ones who boast in Jesus. He is our confidence. 
and we're looking to others and we're saying, don't boast in yourself, boast in Him. Find confidence in what Christ has done, not in what you have done. And then, as I mentioned before, he says this phrase, put no confidence in the flesh, stated negatively, down with the flesh, up with Christ. Down with the flesh and up with Christ, up with Christ and His work. To have confidence in the flesh is to say, look, God, this is why you should approve me. To point to some, anything other than Christ, whether it's your Bible study, you, th- you think this or that about yourself or your status or your lineage or whatever it is. If you're saying, look, Jesus, this is why you should approve me, that thing is totally insufficient. It's totally insufficient. And Christians, we are the ones who put no confidence in the flesh. There's no boasting there. And this phrase, flesh, would have obviously been another jab at the Jews, but they're the ones who are putting confidence in the flesh, both literally in circumcision and more generally related to their works. And so this Jewish national identity and their, their physical ceremonies, they were taking pride in these things. And he says, Christians, we have nothing to do with that. That means nothing to us. The flesh is indeed insufficient for our association with God and our association with others. If it was up to the flesh to decide how I was associating with God, it's insufficient. If it was up to the flesh to decide how I would associate with the brothers and sisters in Christ, it is insufficient. If it was up to the flesh, then there would be all kinds of divisions being created. Whether or not this is this is the, the, the cool church. This is a church only of this skin color, or only of this background, or only of this this educational status, or only the ones who have this much money. They go to these types of churches. But in God's church, we're all together. There is unity. And how will we gain unity in the church? It is when we take no confidence in the flesh. There is nothing in the flesh for you, Christian. And when you begin to see that, it's going to bring about this unifying effect in the body. It's going to unify us. And then... And then if I was to, for a moment, begin to try and further define for you this word boast. This word boast and this word confidence is important for our passage because it's the crux at which he's making these grand contrasts. So to to boast means to take pride in something, to take pride in it. So to to take pride, it brings with it a sense of prominence. So you don't take pride in things that are silly or worthless, but only the, the things of the greatest worth the greatest value. So if you were to brag about something, to take pride in it, you're saying that you, you think that is really, it's a worthy thing. It's a highly valued thing. It's something worthy of praise and worship as opposed to other things. Church, be warned. Some works and statuses are not worthy of your boast or confidence. In fact, all, all statuses and works are not worthy for you to boast in. You, you can't boast in those things. There's only one thing worth boasting in. And this act, of bo- this act of boasting inherently involves both this associating and the object. So you can imagine it as though it's a hook and a link. There is both this pride you're associating with, so the hook and the object. So you're linking yourself together with it. You're saying, I'm with that thing. When you, when you boast in something, when you take pride in something, you're saying, I'm with that thing. And that object is, is also present in this idea of boasting. And, and we, would only, 
We would only chain ourselves to things. We would only link ourselves to things that are favorable and good. Whether, it, whether this be because it brings joy or satisfaction or purpose or refuge, this act of boasting, this act of boasting, and in our context, in our context in this passage, what is boasting a reference to? Well, it is a reference to the, the ultimate satisfaction, the ultimate purpose, the ultimate refuge. That is communion with God. Communion with God. And for you to, to, for you to boast with, with God, to take pride in Him, to associate and link yourself to Him, you need a mediator. You need a mediator. And Christians, hear this, you are defined as the ones who are worshiping. You can ascribe worth by the Spirit. You can boast on account of Christ's work. Christ has given us a mediator in this boasting, in this associating endeavor. And so then Paul begins to, to run into our second part of the passage. So he's begin contrasting the Jews, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. We're not those. We're the ones who put no confidence in the flesh. We're the ones who worship God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus. And then he says, but if we're going to play this game, Jews, if we're going to play this game related to boasting in the flesh and our works and what we've done, then I have much more to boast about. I have much more confidence. I have, I have accomplished much more than you, Jews. If the, if the name of the game is one-upmanship, then Paul's saying, all right, let's do it. Let's talk about our resumes then. And Paul is going to use his own life to bring about these contrasts of both the flesh and boasting in Christ. And he's going to use them to contrast both loss and gain. Paul's going to look to his own resume. And I want you to keep in mind here that as we read here, there's two audiences present, isn't there? There is the audience of the Jews, or at least the Jewish sentiment. And, and Paul here is going to harass them. I mean, he is going to belittle them. You mutilators of the flesh. It's almost as Paul is walking in and kind of pushing him in the chest. He's like, he's like picking a fight here, right? And so these Jews are present, and he's going to harass them. But, but also see, church, that Christians are present. He's writing to the brethren. And as they see Paul, their pastor, their champion, they're going to find great encouragement in his miraculous conversion. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He murdered Stephen, our brother, and yet God captured him. He took him as his own. And so let's, let's begin to look at Paul's resume then. He says, if you want to boast, okay, let's boast. Let's look at what we've done. So he says that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So before I begin to, to begin to explain some of these, I want to just zoom out for a moment and say, this is why you should study your Old Testament. If you're looking at these and you have no idea who Benjamin is, you, have, you don't really know who Israel is, and this is all just kind of sounds crazy, that's okay. You are where you are, but this is why we study the Old Testament. Paul is going to line up all these things that are coming in from the Old Testament, and he's going to use it to make beautiful Jesus in his gospel. Study your Old Testaments. But, but to zoom back in here, he says he was circumcised on the eighth day. So I've just described for you for a moment what is circumcision. So Paul wasn't just circumcised, he was circumcised on the eighth day, and this would have been a sort of first-class Jewish obedience to the law. 
This eighth day talk, it one, it talks about his, his physical birth to Israel. So he wasn't kind of an outsider who later kind of joined in with the Jews, but he was there from the beginning. His mom and his dad were Jews. He's, he's kind of a, a pure blood, if you will. He's the purest of the pure. And, and the Old Testament circumcision, once again, is delineating that he's actually in the family of God. He's not an outsider. Who is your father? That was an important question to the Jews. We see this in the beginning of the Gospels when you have these long lineages, so-and-so begets so-and-so. Well, this is part of it. They, they would have saw those things as extremely valuable, your lineage. And not only that, but he says he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Well, the tribe of Benjamin, if you remember, Benjamin was one of the sons of Rachel and Jacob. So you have this figure in the Old Testament, Jacob, who later becomes Israel, who has 12 sons, who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob in particular, he had, he had a few wives, but one of them he loved. He loved especially, and that was Rachel. And she had two sons, Benjamin and Joseph. And so he says, I'm from that tribe. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, you know, the one that came from the wife that, my, that, that Israel loved. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. And not only that, the tribe of Benjamin were the ones who remained faithful during the Davidic monarchy. So when you have these divisions that are happening in the kingdom in the Old Testament and David is coming to power, Benjamin and his crew, his tribe, they were faithful to David. They were faithful to him. And then he says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So once again here, he's just, he's just flooding the resume. I'm better than you. I have more confidence I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm more obedient than you are. And then, so, so we have these, these, this kind of line separating them. Some of these characteristics on the resume, if you're, maybe perhaps you can picture a resume and uh, the past experience, present experience, okay? So this would have been uh, maybe one section. He's talking about his lineage, so the things that he received. And then the second section, he's going to talk about his accomplishments that he's done in light of what he's received. So he begins by calling himself a Pharisee. And the Pharisees, we meet these guys all over the gospel. Uh, Jesus doesn't like them very much, by the way. Uh, But these are the influential moral leaders. So if I was to try and capture for you the Pharisees, they are this. They are law-centered. They are law-controlled and law-promoting. Law-centered, law-controlled and law-promoting. And next he says... As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. So Paul is talking about his association with the Jews, and he was the purest of the pure, and he even found himself in this radical sect, this radical part of them that were saying, if anyone's against us, they're dead. They're going down. And so Paul was, he calls himself a persecutor of the church. So this violent commitment to purity. And we see this in in Acts chapter 7, don't we? This is the first time we begin to see Saul, Stephen, the brethren. So, so the, the ascension happens, the, the spirit comes, and then the, the, the new church starts preaching the gospel and the word can't be stopped. It's just going everywhere and persecution comes and it can't be stopped. And then in chapter seven, 7 of Acts, Saul, or rather Stephen, preaches this sermon. And they are so furious about his words, his accusative words, you stiff-necked people, that they kill him. And then it says this little phrase, if you don't catch it, they said they were laying down their garments at the feet of Saul. Saul, the guy who wrote half of the New Testament, was there murdering Christians. Can God save anyone? 
can God save anyone? Yes. Take hope, Christians. God can save anyone. And as it relates to the law, Paul says, I was perfect. I was blameless. There's nothing that you could have had on me. And then we get to verse 7, and he's just going to take, he's going to take their resume and just rip it up. He's going to rip it up. And he says this to them. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So, so something happens here, doesn't it? Christ enters. You have Paul who's persecuting the church and he's on his way. He's on the road to Damascus to get some more Christians. And then, bang, Jesus shows up. And he drops down out of the sky and he confronts him. He confronts him, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Whatever I counted as gain, Paul says, all these accomplishments, they're loss because of Christ. When Christ enters, everything changes. So Christ enters history, and he lives blameless and sinless, and he is captured and put on trial as a transgressor for sinners. He took on the wrath of God. That was due sinners, and he gives, us, he gives righteousness to sinners. This is the great exchange. He gives a real righteousness, a real righteousness. And when, when Christ enters Paul's life, all this gain all these lofty accomplishments, he considers them nothing. These extremely valuable things in life, the works of righteousness, they mean nothing. Who can cause such a great change? Who can create such a flipping? Christ. Christ can cause such a flipping. When Christ, ent- when Christ enters, everything changes. When Christ comes in in all of his worthiness, and all of his surpassing worthiness, everything for Paul is flipped. And that which was gain is now considered loss. And then he says again, indeed, Paul considered all things, all works, and anything and everything that could be counted as a boast, his lineage, his works, these things that he had labored for, all this he counts loss. And Paul here is looking back at all of his gains through his lineage and status and other works. He counts them as nothing. So you can think of this perhaps in accounting terms. It's not as though Paul took some of his works and he says, okay, well, that was really good, but now it's worth 50% of what it was. So it's half its value. And this one over here, it's worth 10% of what it was. So it still has something. There's still something there. No, no, no. Paul doesn't say anything like this. He adds it all up. He, He puts it on the sheet and he's adding it up. And at the bottom line, he is actually in the negative. It's considered loss. That's how invaluable your works are. That's how invaluable they were to Paul. Why? Why? Because of the surpassing worthiness. The surpassing worthiness of Christ. Once you know about Christ, all other knowledge of attaining justification just sounds ridiculous. It just sounds ridiculous. Once you've tasted of his goodness, all other good things, they're bad. All other sweet things are no longer sweet. Christ is surpassing. He's surpassing in his righteousness and in his worthiness. Behold, church, your Christ, your Messiah, he is worthy. He's worthy. Once you know him, everything can be counted as loss. He he is the treasure among treasures. 
He's completely unique in his value. And so Paul continues in the passage and he says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found of him, be found in him. Because of Christ, Paul suffered many losses. So this is pre pre Christ, and now that he has Christ, he's still suffering. He's still losing things. He suffered many losses. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten, mocked, attacked. And he even writes this letter as he's sitting in a prison. And he takes all of that and he puts it together and he considers it as rubbish. And this word in the Greek, it literally means poop. That's how invaluable it is. It's just just that it's, it's poop. It means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. Christian, you too can suffer. You can suffer the loss of everything, but if you've gained Christ, you have everything. The scales, it's not even close. It's totally one-sided. When you have Christ, his surpassing worthiness is like a, it's the weight among weights. You can lose everything, but if you have Christ, you have everything. And look, look next, we ourselves are, are found in him. So it says that you might gain Christ and be found in him. And this found in him is a curious phrase, isn't it? We might say, I can be found in the library. And we mean that our location is inhabited locally in the confines of the library. Or we might say, I was lost, but now I'm found. And in this sense, we still existed locally, but the place we were was unfavorable or was unknown in a bad way. In our context, when Paul says that he is found in Christ, it should be understood as related to his boasting or his confidence. That is, all of his being, all of his worth, all of his efforts, all of his works, all of it is found in Christ. It's found in him. I, he's, he's been wrapped up in Christ. Christ surrounds him. He's, he's found in him. And then he says this phrase. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the wall, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness for God that depends on faith. Paul here is contrasting his own works with the self-justifying works that come from the law with that of Christ. Paul's righteousness before God was not his own. It, your righteousness before God is not your own. It's not your own. You did nothing to attain it. Paul did nothing to attain it. Rather, it is a result of Christ's work, of his faithfulness. Paul is contrasting his pedigree with that of faith. Sinners can bring nothing to God that will please him and make him to consider us righteous. The only hope we have, listen to me, the only hope you have at attaining righteousness is to put your trust in him. Sinner, listen to me. You have no hope of gaining righteousness on your own. If you reject Christ, you have no hope of gaining righteousness on your own. Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ is the only one who can satisfy the penalty for your sin. Trust in Christ to be the treasure amongst treasures. And saint, listen to me. No matter how precious your social privileges are or how perfect your moral accomplishments, all that ultimately matters for you is Christ. This is what matters to you. In Christ. In Christ. That's all that's of value. That's the only way you got righteousness. 
And then moving into verse 10, he says this. He says that I may know him, that I may know the power of his resurrection, and that I may know that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. So we can we can take this word know and we could we can place it throughout the passage. I may that I may know him. That I may know him. So this this word resurrection, I want us to think on the grandeur of this event for a moment. A dead man came back to life. Have you ever seen that happen? Even once. Have you ever seen a dead man come back to life? Death. Death is this undefeatable enemy. It's this equalizer of all men, isn't it? No one can beat death. No one could beat death. Death, he was conquered. He was conquered in Christ's death. This is the miraculous God. Christ goes to battle with death and he wins. He gets resurrected. He he wins. And what is his victory prize? His prize is this, the salvation of sinners. His right to save sinners for all time and cast his righteousness on them. Christ in his resurrection defeated death. This is unheard of. This is the miraculous God. And, and the power of the resurrection. So Paul says that I may know him. So I've counted all of this stuff as rubbish. It's nothing. And in gaining Christ, I'm gaining that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I think the power of the, of the resurrection is this. It is the reassurance that Christians have already won the battle. It's the reassurance that Christians have already won the battle. You can't lose. Christian, you can't lose. And no matter what you lose, no matter what comes, no matter what trials and dangers, you have resurrection. You have resurrection to come. So be encouraged, Christian, on account of Christ's work and not your own. And then he says this. He says this curious phrase. He says, to sh- he, he says he's also going to share in suffering. And what's, what's curious about this word is that this same word for share is in the Greek the same word that we're translating partnership in earlier chapters. So were we together, we're partnering together for the gospel, we're linking arms and we're going out together. In the same way, Paul is saying, we too, we're going to partner with Christ and His suffering. Paul sees himself in this fellowship, this partnership with Jesus and His suffering. Just as we partner together, so too we're partnering with Christ Jesus in gospel work and in gospel suffering. We suffer when we partner with Jesus. And I want, I want to just think on this, this theme for a moment. Suffering and Christianity are not separate. They're not separate. But when you're a Christian, suffering and you, you go together. In the economy of God, these two things are usually linked together. Our gospel advancement and suffering are linked together. And why should we assume this? Why is it this way? Because this is exactly what Christ did. We're going to look like our King. What a glorious gain we have. What a glorious gain we have. And isn't it interesting that the people who write most deeply and most sweetly about the preciousness of Christ are people who have suffered with him the most deeply. Isn't that often true of us? Christian, suffering is not separate from you, but it is, it is part of what you're doing. 
If you're wondering, when I share the gospel, am I going to suffer? Is it going to be weird? Are people going to think I'm stupid? Yes, that will happen. But take hope that happened to Christ too. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, he could have said nothing wrong. I mean, he was perfect. If we're looking for the right phrases to do evangelism well, Jesus was perfect. He never said something too much. He never said something too little. He didn't ever not have enough insight for a situation to know how to get to their heart. He was perfect, and they hated him. They hated him. They hated him so much that they hung him on a tree. If that's what's happening with Christ, guess what's going to happen with us? We, too, suffer. We're going to endure suffering. And to, better, to help you better grasp this death living and the power of the resurrection, I want to read to you a passage from the Lord of the Rings. Now, this illustration was first brought to my attention by my friend Drake. He wrote a blog about it called Christ is Our Warrior King. You should go read it. But I want to read this passage to illustrate for you the power of the resurrection and this death living that we do as Christians. So he says this, Tolkien. Suddenly the king cried to Snowmane and the horse sprang away. Behind him his banner blew in the wind, white horse upon a field of green, but he outpaced it. After him thundered the knights of his house, but he was ever before them. Eomir rode there, the white horse tail on his helm, floating in the speed, and the front of the first Eord roared like a breaker foaming to the shore, but Theoden could not be overtaken. Fay he seemed, or the battle fury of his fathers ran like new fire in his veins, and he was bore up on snow mane like a god of old, even as Oromir the Great in the battle of Valar when the world was young. His golden shield was uncovered, and lo, it shone like an image of the sun, and the grass flamed into green about the white feet of his steed. For morning, for morning came, morning in its wind from the sea, and the darkness was removed, and the host of Mordor wailed, and terror took them, and they fled and died, and the hooves of wrath rode over them. And then all the host of Rohan burst into song, and they sang as they slew, for the joy of battle was upon them, and the sound of their singing that was fair and terrible came even to the city. From this short reading, we see a king who rode furiously into battle, defeating the enemy. His followers, the men from his house, they rode behind him and they joined him. They partnered with him in the battle. And as they entered in into the war, they sang as they slew, for the joy of battle was upon them. And this is a battle like any other, filled with risk and pain and suffering, and yet they had joy. This is the same with Christians. We too have followed our fearless king into battle. And the battle is sure. And it is won. And yet we're still in the battle. Christian, take heart. Your king who has won the battle over death, we too will taste victory and resurrection. We too. The battle is sure. And he says this phrase at the very end of chapter 11. Just as we join Christ in his suffering and death, so we will join him in his resurrection. Because we are joined to him, we have resurrection with him. This stuff isn't just the strained parts of the Bible that I kind of want to, that, that I kind of want to ignore because it kind of sounds make-believe. Listen to me. God has written an excellent story. I mean, who writes a story like this? 
And yet, it's real. This happened in history. This really happened. Christ came as our victorious king and he died. And these real events give us real assurance in the midst of suffering and trials that we'll endure. So I want to bring you into my conclusions. I have two of them for you. And they are these. The first one is this. Paul's identity is in Christ and ours should be too. Paul's identity is in Christ and ours should be too. Paul speaks a lot about highly being exalted and then suffering and death and resurrection. Is this not the same endeavor that Christ has traveled for the sake of believers? He was, he was truly highly exalted. This is chapter 2. Highly exalted and rightfully just before God and he emptied himself and became a man. What great suffering. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and then he resurrected Highly exalted. In Paul's story, Paul's story, he too was highly exalted, but he was exalting himself. According to the law, he was the greatest of the great. Paul had a fake righteousness, but Christ had a real righteousness. And do you know that Paul was captured by Christ? Christ enters. He enters. And being captured, Paul lost everything. All his self-justifying works, they became nothing and he gained Christ and joined him in death. And now Paul is experiencing the power of the resurrection. Paul's story is wrapped up into Christ's story. He can't even think about himself without thinking of the gospel. Why? Because Christ looked at him and he said, mine. He said, mine. So stated negatively, often when people ask us our story, we begin to tell them that all of the places we've been and what we've accomplished I know with me, I usually start to talk about my degrees, and I fear that I find more identity in my degrees and my work for God than I do Christ himself. When you have everything right and you miss Christ, you've missed everything. You can keep all the law, but if you misunderstand, you refuse to submit to Christ, you have nothing. This was Paul's greatest mistake. He had all the law, and yet he was persecuting the church, Christ's body. And Jesus confronts him on the Damascus road, and he says, why are you persecuting me? But he was killing the church. He was murdering Christians. And it's curious that Paul later in his letter to the Corinthians, he uses this same language, that we as the church are the body of Christ. Your identity, church, is in Christ. Listen to me, there's more joy and gain in identifying with Christ than identifying with your own labors. You who labor, there is rest in Christ. You who fear loss, in Christ you have gained everything. This type of identity crisis is exactly what we need. Christ is all. Christ is everywhere in this text. He's everywhere in this book of Philippians. He's everywhere in the Bible. All things point forward to Christ and the Old Testament, and all things point back to him in the New Testament. And we, as the people of God, have nothing else but a Messiah. Fundamentally, we are the redeemed, bought by Christ. We have no boast but Christ. We have no purpose but Christ. We have no confidence but Christ. We have no comfort but Christ. We have no refuge but Christ. We have no glory but Christ. Christ is all. Christ is all. And when Christ is all, we can lose everything and still have everything because we have Christ. 
And this is my second conclusion for you. Understanding loss is gain in our world today. And I want to just read you a quick illustration from, from a theologian, John Newton. He says this, Suppose a man was going to New York to take a possession of a large estate, and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obligated him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think of him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. You see, we too, Christians, have a large estate. God has given us everything in Christ. And when our carriages break in this life, it would be foolish of us to act like we've lost our large estate. God has given you the largest of estates in Christ. So when you lose in this world today and you still have Christ, you have everything. You can suffer great loss, Christian, because you have everything. And all of this talk about identifying with Christ, it has everything to do with gospel sharing. It has everything to do with gospel sharing. What's going to give you the, the gall and the encouragement to look stupid and embarrassed and talk to your coworker? It's knowing that you're in Christ. You're found in him. Your identity in, in whole and not in part is in Christ. And that's going to press you through. And it's a days, in the days to come when you lose things on account of associating with Christ, whether that be social status or even, God forbid, physical damage and harm, when you suffer loss like that, you still have Christ. In this world, we're the sent ones. We're going to be sharing the gospel everywhere. We're going to face suffering. And it's this type of stuff that's going to get us through. That's going to press us forward. Every week here at Emmaus, we close by doing communion. As you can see the, the two side tables here. So I want to say a few just brief things about communion. Communion is for Christians. It's not for unbelievers. If you do not associate with Christ, we ask that you don't come and take this. Because what this is for us is it's a symbol of what Christ did on the cross. His, his, his body, the bread, his blood, the wine. And for us, it means something great. And if you were to do it and you don't believe in Christ, this would mean nothing to you. This would be shallow and hollow. So we ask believers that you would, you would come and take remembering what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. Emmaus, come and take. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.